Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of scientific progress. This episode was produced by the Academy's Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and made possible through the generous support of Bush Brothers and Company. Today, we're going to tell a story about food, a particular kind of food that most of us have probably not spent a heck of a lot of time thinking about. Actually, it's worse than that. When we do think about it, it's probably to have a laugh at its expense. I defy you to think of a food that's funnier than beans. You're full of beans. It doesn't add up to a hill of beans. Bean bags, beanie weenie, and beans beans the musical fruit. The humble bean, though, which we've so long either mocked or ignored, is actually a nutritional powerhouse and worthy of both your attention and respect, especially a subset of beans called pulses. This includes kidney and pinto beans, chickpeas, dried green peas, also known as split peas, and lentils. Basically all the legumes we eat regularly except for soybeans, peanuts, fresh green peas, and green beans. You may not know it, but at the time of this recording, we are all living in the International Year of the Pulse, an occasion announced at the podium at an event at the Academy on November 19th, 2015, called Little Beans, Big Opportunities. Here's Dr. Julianne Curran of the trade group Pulse Canada. Last week in Rome, the Director General of the FAO officially launched the International Year of Pulses. Last night here in New York City, a media launch event was held, and today marks the first of 10 signature events that will be taking place over the next 12 months to celebrate the International Year of Pulses. So what's so great about these beans? Well, let's start with a little background. Albert Einstein once said that if he had an hour to find a solution, he'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem. Smart guy, Albert. And one of the things he's pointing to there is a fundamental difficulty in any attempt to change the world. If you've created an effective solution to something that turns out to be the wrong problem, you can wind up in a place that's just as bad or almost as bad as where you started. A good example of this is in what could be described as one of the greatest success stories in the history of human civilization, the Green Revolution of the middle 20th century an explosion of new agricultural techniques and technologies that added orders of magnitude to the total amount of food that our planet is capable of producing. And the result was, basically, the eradication of famine from the developed world. Generations of people in places like the US and Western Europe have now grown up without any idea of what real famine looks like. And even in the developing world, the reasons for hunger and malnutrition now largely have to do with things like politics and international economics. There are still, unfortunately, millions of people who can't afford enough to eat. But it's not because the food doesn't exist for them to buy. So what's the issue? Well, it has to do with the fact that the problem, back then, was defined more or less as the production of total calories. And so the solution was to revolutionize the production of high caloric foods cereal grains like wheat and corn, because they are the most efficient way to fill up bellies. The problem is that they're not necessarily the healthiest thing to fill up bellies with. Here's Dr. John McDermott of the International Food Policy Research Institute. 
The cereal story is a good story in a sense that we had a food security problem. We didn't have enough rice and wheat, and we sorted it out. And that was a mixture of kind of policy, extension, good varieties, etc. And we pulled it all together. The problem is, it's very hard to unwind that now because we have different problems. What we have in the moment in world nutrition is kind of a two-headed monster. On one hand, the people who can't afford to feed themselves are still starving. And on the other, those that can are eating too much and too much of the wrong things. Here's Dr. Sunny Ramaswamy, director of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture at the United States Department of Agriculture. I like to say we have a billions dilemma in the world. We have tonight about 850 million, almost a billion people that's going to go to bed hungry because they're food insecure. And many of those are probably going to die. And at a bookend on the other side, we have 1.3 billion people globally. That is going to go to bed tonight, take Lipitor for cholesterol, baby aspirin for heart disease, metformin for type 2 diabetes, hypertension medication, and things like that. It's undeniable that in the past 50 or so years, there's been an incredible uptick in the availability of cheap, simple carbohydrates in the form of things like corn syrup. Compare the 1940s, when sugar was actually rationed, to today, when it's not unusual to consume more than 60 grams of sugar in a single beverage. And it's an irony of history that this has corresponded with a time when more and more people are leading sedentary lifestyles, working in offices at computers instead of on farms or in factories. So it's little wonder that obesity has exploded in the world's wealthier countries. Here's Dr. Ramaswamy again. 75%, 75% of our healthcare costs are attributable to chronic disease. The result of excessive amounts of calories and sedentary lifestyles and behaviors as well. On the other end of the spectrum, in the developing world, people who are no longer starving are now facing a whole new set of health challenges. The most serious of these might be what's called stunting which is a whole suite of conditions related to children being prevented from growing to their physical potential. This has been related to a lot of environmental factors, but one of the most important seems to be nutrition. Children not getting the full complement of nutrients they need when they need them. Here's Dr. Mark Mannery of Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Stunting is probably the global nutrition enemy in this century. It is incredibly common. It's affecting about 25% of the kids worldwide. It means that something in your environment has prevented you from reaching your physical capacity for work, your intellectual or uh, cognitive development, uh, your immunocompetence, not you know, completely killed you. But we would say a stunted child has, has uh, forfeited eight IQ points. Okay, So that's something on a population level. And because of the ubiquity of inexpensive, high-calorie foods made of refined cereal grains, when people of limited means buy food, these are often the foods they buy. And so those metabolic diseases like diabetes are now rampant worldwide, not just in wealthier countries. Here's Dr. John Stephen Piper of the University of Toronto. 
It's reached certainly epidemic proportions in this country and, and certainly in Canada, but it's really reached pandemic proportions. And if we look here at the Diabetes Atlas from the International Diabetes Federation, what you can see is incredibly high numbers, staggeringly high numbers um, of diabetes, with uh, most of it now focused uh, in the developing world. So whereas it was really thought to be a disease of affluence and was uh, affecting the developed world, we now see the biggest increase is the developing world, in particular South Asia, Southeast Asia, North Africa, Central Africa, um, Russia, uh, and so on. And so a lot of people around the world are working to try and figure out ways to help correct some of these problems. To rebalance the world's diet away from the high-energy simple starches that it's become so addicted to. And maybe that's where beans can come in. Pulses, dried peas, beans, chickpeas, black-eyed peas, and lentils, have nutritional depth that wheat, corn, and white rice can only dream of. High protein, high fiber, which is the source of their musicality, if you will. And also a good source of micronutrients like iron, potassium, and magnesium. Here's Dr. Curran. Pulses have about three times the amount of protein that cereals do. They also complement cereals to provide all the essential amino acids that are needed in the diet. And as people have looked at their nutritional value in detail, they've started to find some remarkable things. These foods seem to have a quality for specifically fighting metabolic diseases that is even greater than the sum of their nutritional parts. Here's Dr. Stephen Piper again. Traditional dietary patterns rich in dietary pulses may represent, I think, an important part of the solution for addressing the epidemics of obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. To begin with, they seem to have a positive effect on weight loss. One of Dr. Stephen Piper's colleagues did a meta-analysis where she found that people eating a pulse-rich diet lost more weight than people who ate other things, even if they were eating the same amount of calories. And what she found is, on the negative energy balance studies, even though they were matched for calories, there was more weight loss in those receiving the dietary pulses than the uh, control intervention. And that was also true in the neutral energy balance. So despite these being weight-maintaining diets, uh, participants lost weight. And overall, there was a weight loss of about almost 400 grams, almost a half a kilo, over a median follow-up of six weeks. So that's pretty good, a half kilo in six weeks. Even more excitingly, there's something specific about pulses that seems to have a significant positive effect on the biochemical underpinnings of metabolic disease. And when I say significant, I mean clinical, as in the kind of benefits that a drug might have. Dr. Stephen Piper's published results that show a benefit of eating more pulses that's similar to the benefits gained by taking some currently available diabetes medications. Well, I published this back in 2009. I screened over 1,000 papers, uh, 11 looking at pulses alone, 19 that looked at pulses as part of a low glycemic index intervention. So we often exploit pulses in this way. And we also exploit them to look at uh, as a way of increasing fiber, so as part of high fiber interventions. And what did we find? Well, if we looked at pulses alone, we did see an improvement in fasting glucose. We also saw an improvement in fasting insulin. If we look at pulses as part of a low GI diet, uh, here we found something that we found particularly striking. We found an improvement in glycated blood proteins. And this related, not that you have to know the units, but to about a half a percent, absolute percent, not, this is not proportional, reduction in hemoglobin A1C. Now this is important because this would be a clinically meaningful 
a benefit. This is the lower limit of efficacy that we see for most of the drugs we actually prescribe for glycemia lowering, antihyperglycemic drugs. And this is very similar to what we see with acrobos, in fact. So it's, it, it shares a lot of, of similarity and would meet the clinical threshold that the FDA has set for new drug development for diabetes drugs, which is 0.3%. So this would certainly meet new drug development criteria for uh, a benefit for glycemic lowering. So not just a small trivial benefit, this is quite, I think, this is a clinically meaningful benefit. Likewise, Dr. Mannery has been examining some promising effects of pulse consumption on gut health, which is shorthand for the well-being of the symbiotic microbes that live in your stomach and intestines. Poor gut health is another risk factor for stunting. So eating more pulses has the potential to alleviate stunting in two ways, by giving children a more nutrient-rich diet, and also by positively supporting their microbiome. And that's something that's proved very hard to do. Here's Dr. Mannery. You know, we don't, it's not something pharmacologically treatable. It's not something that we know how to, to affect with, you know, giving the full complement of nutrients like Seth was talking about. So we are, we're curious about what kind of things could improve gut health and, and legumes are on our list. On top of all that, Growing pulses is even healthy for the ground. Most food crops are hungry for nitrogen. They suck it out of the soil, making it harder for future crops to be grown on the same piece of land. This is the primary function of fertilizer, to put more nitrogen into the ground. But pulses are in a class of plants that actually help nitrogen find its way back into the ground, improving the soil for other crops. Here's Dr. Ramaswamy. They have outstanding ability to uh, have the, create this environment in the rhizosphere where you have associated bacteria that can grab a, uh, uh, atmospheric nitrogen and convert that into nitrogenous compounds that gets deposited right in that soil itself so that other crops that you're going to come through with can indeed utilize that nitrogen that's in there. So let's all start growing and eating more pulses. It seems like a slam dunk. Well, unfortunately, it's not so easy. Even if we all wanted to totally shift our diets tomorrow, global food production is big business. It's built around large farms supplying large amounts of consistent raw materials to the food industry. And an industry that size just isn't built to turn on a dime. Here's Dr. Richard Black, Vice President of Global Research and Development for the Nutrition Sciences Division of PepsiCo. It's kind of like a catch-22. You go to the business and you say, we should be using pulses. Well, there isn't the supply, so we can't make the product. Okay, well, you go to the growers, you say, well, you know, we need the supply. Well, there's nobody to buy the product from us, so we can't grow that much. And you really get to the point where you have to have, you know, be able to lock hands and say, okay, we're in this together somehow, uh, sink or swim, uh, so that you can actually build the product at the same time you're building the supply. Right. Really hard to do. There's two interlocking problems there, supply and demand. Let's try to pull them apart and look at each separately, starting with supply. Because the food industry has been so focused on cereal grains for so long, most of the pulses in the world are not grown on big industrial farms. They're grown by a lot of small farmers in places like India, where pulses, particularly lentils, are the main staple of the traditional diet. When I say small farmers, I mean very small, 
sometimes just a few acres that they plant and work by hand. And when I say a lot of these small farms, I mean a lot. Here's Dr. Alan Hruska of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Association. There are 22.7 million small uh, pulse producers holdings in India alone. So my estimate worldwide is that there are at least 100 million pulse producers worldwide, taking that data and the percentage of pulses produced in India. So we're talking about many, many uh, small producers and their families and communities. And so if the food industry wanted to make a big investment in pulses, at least in the short term, it would mean dealing with not a few large-scale producers, but with thousands of tiny ones or even more. And that would be a really difficult thing to do for all kinds of reasons. Here's Dr. Black again. Supply chain realities, and this is the tough one. You can't buy from, how many, people, how many farmers were there? 22, 22 million. 22 million. In, in India? Yeah, in, for pulses. For pulses. Alone, yeah. Yeah, you can't source from 22 million. So what, it, you can't. So <laughs> tremendous variety of pulses then, often reason, regionally or seasonally unique with different textures, flavor, color, water content, to name just a few considerations. So that's for us is the biggest challenge because when we make a product, we have to ensure the consistency of the supply, not just the consistency, but the safety of the ingredients and that you know you're gonna get it year after year after year. And we need assurances with regard to the agricultural practices. Can you imagine if we were a large company buying pulses where the agricultural practice, practice was slash and burn? Can you imagine? Or we don't know what the fertilizer that's being used is, or the pesticides that are being used, or the contaminants. How do you develop co-ops or something yeah. that allows both the, the, the people growing to come together and sell, but also for feedback and, and input from, from the people who are buying the crop so that you can say, well, gee, what we really need is this kind or that right. kind. Right. And many countries that produce a lot of pulses have improved and modernized their farming techniques to create the kind of conditions where large-scale purchasing is possible. But this is very inconsistent. Dr. Hruska works in Latin America, which also traditionally has high levels of pulse consumption. In their case, mostly what we call kidney, pinto, and red beans, which are actually all varieties of the same species. And he's found a tremendous gap between the way beans are produced in larger, wealthier countries like Argentina and Brazil, and smaller, poorer ones like the ones in Central America. Here he is to explain. Brazil, you have Argentina, you have Uruguay, and you have large-scale commercial production. But you move up to the Andes or to Mesoamerica that I work in, and uh, what do you see? You see uh, poor farmers, uh, zero mechanization, they're planting the traditional planting stick that their ancestors used thousands of years ago on slopes. This is the typical scene of bean production. And these kind of primitive techniques are still how 90% of the world's pulses are produced. Without improving the conditions in these small farms to the point that they could be organized into the kind of collectives that Dr. Black suggested, the world is just not currently capable of producing pulses in the quantities at which some nutritionists would like to see us all consuming them. Here's Dr. Hruska again. So why is it that in some countries, including Argentina and Uruguay, you have large-scale commercial bean production on good land with high productivity? And 
uh, good returns to the farmer. What is different about the enabling environment, if you would, that create these two systems? Because my point is that it's not simply a technology, it's not a new bean variety that's going to change things. It's really a whole enabling system, environment, that creates the two very distinct systems and some recommendations about policies that we could push forward to change the enabling environment for those small producers in Latin America. First of all, here in uh, the United States or in Canada or Australia or even in Argentina, you have strong private sector support for large-scale commercial farming of beans. You have variety production, uh, seed availability, other inputs, of course, machinery, irrigation. You have a whole uh, service industry around bean production, the cleaning, the standards, private standards, packaging, and then you have all the price information availability. You have contract farming, you have price hedging, you have arrangements that don't exist, uh, are not available to those small farmers in Latin America. And of course, you have a whole public support system for, to, to produce that, uh, for developing good varieties, for improving the agronomic recommendations, how much nitrogen, how much phosphorus, when, etc. Um, for pest and pathogen management, uh, we have entomologists and plant pathologists at our state universities and in Canada that are paid by the public to determine the problems and find solutions for those production systems. You have extension services that still exist in some places, uh, public service to farmers. And f you also have public information systems. You have weather information, which can be used for pest and uh, pathogen monitoring and prediction systems. And finally, you have a whole series of public policies and programs uh, tied to risk management services that the public offers its farmers, including its common bean producers in the United States and Canada. That's a lot of infrastructure to build and maintain. And he didn't even mention basic infrastructure like roads and ports that you need to effectively export agricultural products. So there are some huge logistical problems to be solved if we're going to start producing beans at the same levels which we currently produce wheat and corn. And the truth is, even if we solve all that and start bringing pulses to market in record quantities, that's only the supply half of our master equation. Equally problematic is demand. It doesn't do you any good to bring things to market that no one wants to buy. So what's the problem there? If they're so good for us and so good for the planet, why aren't we all eating pulses three meals a day? Well, there are places in the world where they do. Most notably India, where lentils are an incredibly important staple food. So much so that, remarkably, India is, by wide margins, both the world's largest producer of and the world's largest importer of lentils. Here's Dr. Ramaswamy. Uh, I grew up in India in a vegetarian family, and the source of protein for us was pulses. And we ate it every day for actually two or three of the uh, meals. Uh, you know, I see several of my compatriots sitting in this audience as well from India, and I bet you they probably also grew up eating a lot of pulses as well. But the thing is, we choose what food to eat for all kinds of reasons other than what's good for us or even what we can afford. And that's true worldwide. Sometimes it's not even about what tastes good. Like we said at the very top of the show, we build stories around food. And we feel like the food we choose says something about us. Our personalities, our status in society. The old expression, you are what you eat, isn't just about nutritional content. 
And for all kinds of complex cultural reasons, the traditional favorite foods of European aristocracy have always been meat, fancy pastries, and wine. Call it the steak and cake diet, if you like. And when, because of colonization, the aristocracy of Europe became the aristocracy of the world, this became the diet that the world aspired to. And that's another legacy of the agricultural revolution of the 20th century, putting red meat and white flour on the menus of more people than ever before. Through all that, pulses have always had something of the aura of poverty about them. The feeling that they're what you eat when you can't afford to eat something better. And in many parts of the world, that's not encouraged people to discover or develop recipes that show off just how delicious they can be. Here's Dr. Vincent Amanor Bawadu, a native of Nigeria who is a professor at Kansas State University. What I have found in the work that we are doing in Africa, for example, is that there are not a lot of recipes when it comes to pulses. You know, I mean, growing up, my mom would boil the beans and boil it until it's mushy and then you put it on rice and then that's it. And after you eat it three, four, five times a week, uh, it becomes really boring. Maybe the way to get past these preconceptions and open up people's palates to the possibilities of pulses is to look backwards to the rich cultural traditions that have existed in places like India for centuries, and which in many ways have been threatened by the growing desire of the global middle class to eat like the middle classes in the United States and Great Britain. Here's Dr. P.K. Joshi of the International Food Policy Research Institute. There are many traditional food items which are gradually disappearing. We are moving gradually towards modern food, which are more high calorie, high fat. So we, we would like to recommend that the, we have traditional wisdom of, of, of uh, traditional food. So having traditional wisdom transformed to the modern foods. So more research on you know, food system, food products, which has traditional wisdom, but it becomes a modern, modern food, so that the young generation or middle class income groups made demand for those kinds of commodities. Here's Sarah Bear Sinnott of Old Ways, a group that promotes traditional ways of cooking and eating from around the world. We just promote pulses because they are so much a part of heritage diets all around the world. There are pulses in every traditional diet. So this, these, um, these dishes are on the Old Ways website. Jollof rice and black-eyed peas from Africa, hoppin'john and collard greens from the American South, brown rice and red beans from the Caribbean, and black beans and rice from South America. And we found that people are eating, you know, they're learning to cook, and um, these ways of eating are not only delicious, but they're very healthy. Diabetes is not a part of heritage, and neither is heart disease. In the end, Pulses have the potential to make a big difference in people's diets and their health worldwide, but only if we address all of these issues. Encouraging demand for them by dispelling people's preconceptions and showing how healthy and delicious they are. Encouraging the food industry to keep moving beyond wheat, rice, and corn as they develop new consumer products. And giving farmers the support they need to produce them in greater quantities. Here's Dr. Laurette Dubay of McGill University in Montreal to uh, see 
can we do intervention with a small-scale farmer where we work together to build capacity for farming, capacity for, uh, for nutrition and health education and so on, and capacity for local uh, innovation at community level, food innovation. So taking the perspective of the business, whether it's a large corporation or an SME, to see, okay, how can we help those commercially managing their product portfolio so that ultimately we do create that, uh, that innovation, that food uh, behavior that is healthy and, and uh, commercially successful. And it's a set of problems that are really worth solving because Little Beans really do offer some big opportunities. Here's Ms. Bear Sinnott. They're good for people, they're good for health and culture, they're good for the planet, and means that they're good for the future. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Kerry Kasten, and with administrative and scientific oversight by Marae McLean of the Academy's Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science. Special thanks to all the experts who appeared in this episode, Dr. Julianne Curran of Pulse Canada, Drs. John McDermott and P.K. Joshi of the International Food Policy Research Institute, Dr. Sunny Ramaswamy of the United States Department of Agriculture, Dr. Mark Mannery of Washington University School of Medicine, Dr. John Stevenpiper of the University of Toronto, Dr. Richard Black of PepsiCo, Dr. Alan Ruska of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, Dr. Vincent Amanor Bawadu of Kansas State University, Sarah Bear Sinnott of Old Ways, and Dr. Lorette Dubay of McGill University. All of the presentations excerpted for this podcast were from the event Little Beans Big Opportunities, Realizing the Potential of Pulses to Meet Today's Global Health Challenges at the New York Academy of Sciences, November 19th, 2015. You can find an Academy e-briefing of the complete event at nyas.org slash publications slash e-briefings. That event and this podcast were made possible with the generous support of Bush Brothers and Company.